Chapter forty three of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo. Translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter forty three. Is it thus you treat a man in my position? Is it thus you forget the respect due to justice? Calderon, Louis Perez of Galicia. The trembling Ethel, separated from her father by the guards upon leaving the Lion of Schleswig Tower, was conducted through dim passages, hitherto unknown to her, to a small dark cell which was closed as soon as she had entered it. In the wall opposite the door was a large grated opening, through which came the light of links and torches. Before this opening was a bench, upon which sat a woman, veiled and dressed in black, who signed to her to be seated beside her. Ethel obeyed in silent dismay. She looked through the grated window and saw a solemn and imposing scene. At the farther end of the room, hung with black and dimly lighted by copper lamps suspended from the vaulted roof, was a black platform in the shape of a horseshoe, occupied by seven judges in black gowns, one of whom, placed in the centre upon a higher seat, wore on his breast glittering diamond chains and gold medals. The judge on his right differed from the others in the wearing of a white girdle and an ermine mantle, showing him to be the Lord Mayor of the province. To the right of the bench was a platform covered with a dice, upon which sat an old man in bishop's dress. To the left, a table covered with papers, behind which stood a short man with a huge wig, and enveloped in a long black gown. Opposite the judges was a wooden bench, surrounded by halberdiers holding torches, whose light, reflected back from a forest of pikes, muskets, and partisans, shed a faint glimmer upon the tumultuous heads of a mob of spectators, crowded against the iron railing dividing them from the courtroom. Ethel looked at this spectacle as she might have beheld some waking dream, yet she was far from feeling indifferent to what was about to happen. A secret voice warned her to listen well, because a crisis in her life was at hand. Her heart was a prey to contending emotions. She longed to know instantly what interest she had in the scene before her, or never to know it at all. For some days the idea that her ordiner was forever lost to her had inspired her with a desperate desire to be done with existence once for all, and to read the book of her fate at a single glance. Therefore, realizing that this was a decisive hour, she watched the sombre picture before her, not so much with aversion as with a sort of impatient, melancholy joy. She saw the president rise and proclaim in the king's name that the court was opened. She heard the short dark man to the left of the bench read, in a low rapid voice, a long discourse in which her father's name, mixed with the words, conspiracy, revolt in the minds, and high treason, frequently recurred. Then she remembered what the dread stranger had told her in the dungeon garden of the charges against her father, and she shuddered as she heard the man in the black robe conclude his speech with the word, death, pronounced with great emphasis. She turned in terror to the veiled lady, from whom she shrank with unaccountable fear. "'Where are we? What does all this mean?' she timidly asked. A gesture from her mysterious companion commanded her to be silent and attentive. She again turned her eyes to the courtroom. The venerable bishop rose, and Ethel caught these words. "'In the name of omnipotent and most merciful God, I, Pamphilus Luther, Bishop of the royal province and town of Trondheim, do greet the worthy court assembled here in the name of the king, our lord, under God. And I say that, having observed that the prisoners brought to this bar are men and Christians, 
and that they have no counsel, I declare to the worthy judges that it is my purpose to aid them with my poor strength in the cruel position in which it has pleased heaven to place them. Praying that God will deign to strengthen my great weakness and enlighten my great blindness, I, bishop of this royal diocese, greet this wise and worthy court. So saying, the bishop stepped from his episcopal throne and took his seat upon the prisoner's bench amid a murmur of applause from the people. The president then rose and said in dry tones, Halberdiers, command silence. My lord bishop, the court thanks your reverence in the name of the prisoners. Inhabitants of the province of Trondheim, pay good heed to the king's justice. There can be no appeal from the sentence of the court. Bowman, bring in the prisoners. There was an expectant and terrified hush. The heads of the crowd swayed to and fro in the darkness like the waves of a stormy sea upon which the thunder is about to burst. Soon Ethel heard a dull sound and a strange stir below her in the gloomy aisles of the court. The audience moved aside with a thrill of impatient curiosity. There was a noise of many feet. Halberds and muskets gleamed, and six men, chained and surrounded by guards, entered the room bareheaded. Ethel had eyes for the first of the six alone, a white-headed old man in a black gown. It was her father. She leaned, almost fainting, against the stone balustrade in front of her. Everything swam before her in a confused cloud, and it seemed as if her heart were in her throat. She said in a feeble voice, Oh God, help me! The veiled woman bent over her and gave her salts to smell, which roused her from her lethargy. Noble lady, said she, reviving, for mercy's sake, speak but one word to convince me that I am not the sport of spirits from hell. The stranger, deaf to her entreaty, again turned her head toward the court, and poor Ethel, who had somewhat recovered her strength, resigned herself to do the same in silence. The president rose and said in slow, solemn tones, Prisoners, you are brought before us that we may decide whether or not you are guilty of high treason, conspiracy, and armed rebellion against the authority of the king, our sovereign lord. Examine your consciences well, for the charge of Lee's majesty rests upon your heads. At this moment a gleam of light fell upon the face of one of the six prisoners, a young man who held his head down as if to veil his features with his long hair. Ethel started, and a cold sweat oozed from every pore. She thought she recognized, but no, it was a cruel illusion. The room was but dimly lighted, and men moved about it like shadows. The great polished ebony Christ hanging over the president's chair was scarcely visible. And yet that young man was wrapped in a mantle which at this distance seemed to be green. His disordered hair was chestnut, and the unexpected gleam which revealed his features. But no, it was not true. It could not be. It was some horrid delusion. The prisoners were seated on the bench beside the bishop. Schumacher took his place at one end. He was separated from the chestnut-haired young man by his four companions in misfortune, who wore coarse clothes, and among whom was one of gigantic stature. The bishop sat at the other end of the bench. Ethel saw the president turn to her father, saying in a stern voice, Old man, tell us your name and who you are. The old man raised his venerable head. Once, he replied, looking steadily at the president, I was Count Griffenfeld and Tunsberg, Prince of Wallin, 
prince of the holy german empire knight of the royal orders of the elephant and the dannebrog knight of the golden fleece in germany and of the garter in england prime minister lord rector of all our universities lord high chancellor of denmark and the president interrupted him prisoner the court does not ask who you were nor what your name once was but who you are and what it now is well answered the old man quickly my name is john schumacher now i am sixty-nine years old and i am nothing but your former benefactor chancellor d'alefeld the president seemed confused i recognized you count added the ex-chancellor and as i thought you did not know me i took the liberty to remind your grace that we are old acquaintances schumacher said the president in a voice trembling with concentrated fury do not trifle with the court the aged prisoner again interrupted him we have changed places noble chancellor i used to call you d'alefeld and you addressed me as count prisoner replied the president you only injure your cause by recalling the infamous decree which already brands your name if that sentence entailed infamy on any one count d'alefeld it was not on me the old man half rose as he spoke these words with great emphasis the president waved his hand sit down do not insult in the presence of the court the judges who condemned you and the king who surrendered you to those judges recollect that his majesty deigned to grant you your life and confine yourself to defending it schumacher's only answer was a shrug of the shoulders have you asked the president anything to say in regard to the charges preferred against you seeing that schumacher was silent the president repeated his question are you speaking to me said the ex-chancellor i supposed noble count d'alefeld that you were speaking to yourself of what crime do you accuse me did i ever give a judas kiss to a friend have i imprisoned condemned and dishonored a benefactor robbed him to whom i owed everything in truth my lord chancellor i know not why i am brought here doubtless it is to judge of your skill in lopping off innocent heads indeed i shall not be sorry to see whether you find it as easy to ruin me as to ruin the kingdom and whether a single comma will be a sufficient pretext for my death as one letter of the alphabet was enough for you to bring on a war with sweden he had scarcely uttered this bitter jest when the man seated at the table to the left of the bench arose my lord president said he bowing low my lord judges i move that john schumacher be forbidden to speak if he continue to insult his grace the president of this worshipful court the calm voice of the bishop answered mr private secretary no prisoner can be deprived of the right to speak true reverend bishop hastily exclaimed the president we propose to allow the defence the utmost liberty i would merely advise the prisoner to moderate his expressions if he understands his own interest schumacker shook his head and said coldly it seems that count d'alefeld is more sure of his game than he was in sixteen seventy seven 
silence said the president and instantly addressing the prisoner next to the old man he asked his name a mountaineer of colossal stature whose forehead was washed in bandages rose saying i am hans of klipstadur in iceland a shudder of horror ran through the crowd and schumacher lifting his head which had sunk upon his breast cast a sudden glance at his dreadful neighbor from whom all his other fellow prisoners shrank hans of iceland asked the president when the confusion ceased what have you to say for yourself ethel was as much startled as any of the spectators by the appearance of the famous brigand who had so long played a prominent part in all her visions of alarm she fixed her eyes with timid dread upon the monstrous giant with whom her ordiner had possibly fought whose victim he perhaps was this idea again took possession of her soul in all its painful shapes thus wholly absorbed by countless heart-rending emotions she hardly heeded the coarse blundering answer of this hans of iceland whom she regarded almost as her ordiner's murderer she only understood that the brigand declared himself to be the leader of the rebel forces was it of your own free will asked the president or by the suggestion of others that you took command of the insurgents the brigand answered it was not of my own free will who persuaded you to commit such a crime a man named hackett who was this hackett an agent of schumacher whom he also called count griffenfeld the president turned to schumacher schumacher do you know this hackett you have forestalled me count d'ahlefeld rejoined the old man i was about to ask you the same question john schumacher said the president your hatred is ill-advised the court will put the proper value upon your system of defence the bishop then said turning to the short man who seemed to fill the office of recorder and prosecutor mr private secretary is this hackett one of your clients no your reverence replied the secretary does any one know what has become of him he was not captured he has disappeared it seemed as if the private secretary tried to steady his voice as he said this i rather think that he has vanished altogether said schumacker the bishop continued mr secretary is any one in pursuit of this hackett has any one a description of him before the private secretary could answer one of the prisoners rose he was a young miner with a stern proud face he is easily described said he in a firm voice this contemptible hackett schumacher's agent is a man of low stature with an open countenance like the mouth of hell stay mr bishop his voice is very like that of the gentleman writing at the table over there whom your reverence calls i believe private secretary and truly if the room were not so dark and the private secretary had less hair to hide his face i could almost swear that he looked very much like the traitor hackett our brother speaks truly cried the prisoners on either side of the young miner indeed muttered schumacker with a look of triumph the secretary involuntarily started whether from fear or from the indignation which he felt at being compared to hackett the president who himself seemed disturbed hurriedly exclaimed prisoners remember that you are only to speak in answer to a question from the court and do not insult the officers of the law by unworthy comparisons but mr president 
said the bishop. This is a mere matter of description. If the guilty Hackett has points of resemblance to your secretary, it may be useful to... The president cut him short. Hands of Iceland, you who have had such frequent intercourse with Hackett, tell us, to satisfy the worthy bishop, whether the fellow really resembles our honorable private secretary. Not at all, sir, unhesitatingly answered the giant. You see, my lord bishop, added the president. The bishop acknowledged his satisfaction by a bow, and the president, addressing another prisoner, pronounced the usual formula. What is your name? Wilfred Cannibal, from the Curlin Mountains. Were you among the insurgents? Yes, sir. The truth at all costs. I was captured in the cursed defile of Black Pillar. I was the chief of the mountaineers. Who urged you to the crime of rebellion? Our brothers the miners complained of the royal protectorate. And that was very natural, was it not, your worship? If you had nothing but a mud hut and a couple of paltry foxkins, you would not like to have them taken from you. The government would not listen to their petitions. Then, sir, they made up their minds to rebel and begged us to help them. Such a slight favor could not be refused by brothers who say the same prayers and worship the same saints. That's the whole story. Did nobody, said the president, excite and courage and direct your insurrection? There was a Mr. Hackett who was forever talking to us about rescuing a count who was imprisoned at Munkholm, whose messenger he said he was. We promised to do as he asked, because it was nothing to us to set one more captive free. Was not this Count's name Schumacher or Griffenfeld fellow? Exactly so, your worship. Did you never see him? No, sir. But if he be that old man who told you that he had so many names just now, I must confess. What? interrupted the president. That he has a very beautiful white beard, sir. Almost as handsome a one as my sister Maz's husband's father, of the village of Serb, and he lived to be one hundred and twenty years old. The darkness of the room prevented any one from seeing whether the president looked disappointed at the mountaineer's simple answer. He ordered the archers to produce certain scarlet flags. Wilfried Cannibal, he asked, do you recognize these flags? Yes, your grace. They were given to us by Hackett in Count Schumacher's name. The Count also distributed arms to the miners, for we did not need them, we mountaineers who live by our gun and game-bag. And I myself, sir, such as you see me, trust as I am like a miserable fowl to be roasted, have more than once, in one of our deep valleys, brought down an old eagle flying so high that it looked like a lark or a thrush. You hear, judges, remarked the private secretary, the prisoner Schumacher distributed arms and banners to the rebels through Hackett. Cannibal, asked the president, have you anything more to say? Nothing, your grace, except that I do not deserve death. I only lend a hand in brotherly love to the miners, and I'll venture to say before all your worships that my bullet, old hunter as I am, never touched one of the king's deer. The president, without answering this plea, cross-examined Cannibal's two companions. They were the leaders of the miners. The older of the two, who stated that his name was Jonas, repeated Cannibal's testimony in slightly different words. The other, the same young man who had noticed such a strong resemblance between the private secretary and the treacherous Hackett, called himself Norbith, and proudly avowed his share in the rebellion, but refused to reveal anything regarding Hackett and Schumacher, 
saying that he had sworn secrecy and had forgotten everything but that oath. In vain the president tried threats and entreaties, the obstinate youth was not to be moved. Moreover, he insisted that he had not rebelled on Schumacher's account, but simply because his old mother was cold and hungry. He did not deny that he might deserve to die, but he declared that it would be unjust to kill him, because in killing him they would also kill his poor mother, who had done nothing to merit punishment. When Norbith ceased speaking, the private secretary briefly summed up the heavy charges against the prisoners, and more especially against Schumacher. He read some of the seditious mottoes on the flags, and showed how the general agreement of the answers of the ex-chancellor's accomplices, and even the silence of Norbith, bound by a fanatical oath, tended to inculpate him. There now remains, he said in close, but a single prisoner to be examined, and we have strong reasons for thinking him the secret agent of the authority who has ill-protected the peace of the province of Trondheim. This authority has favoured, if not by his guilty connivance, at least by his fatal negligence, the outbreak of the revolt which must destroy all these unhappy men, and restore Schumacher to the scaffold from which the king's clemency so generously preserved him. Ethel, whose fears for Ordener were now converted into cruel apprehensions for her father, shuddered at these ominous words, and wept floods of tears when her father rose and said quietly, Chancellor Dahlefeld, I admire your skill. Have you summoned the hangman? The unfortunate girl thought her cup of bitterness was full. She was mistaken. The sixth prisoner now stood up. With a superb gesture he swept back the hair which covered his face, and replied to the president's questions in a clear, firm voice. My name is Ordener Guldenlev, Baron Thorwick, Knight of the Dunnebrog. An exclamation of surprise escaped the secretary. The viceroy's son! The viceroy's, the viceroy's son. son! Repeated every voice, as if the words were taken up by countless echoes. The president shrank back in his seat. The judges, hitherto motionless upon the bench, bent toward one another in confusion, like trees beaten by opposing winds. The commotion was even greater in the audience. The spectators climbed upon stone cornices and iron rails. The entire assembly spoke through a single mouth, and the guards, forgetting to insist upon silence, added their ejaculations to the general uproar. Only those accustomed to sudden emotions can imagine Ethel's feelings. Who could describe that unwonted mixture of agonizing joy and delicious grief? that anxious expectation which was alike fear and hope and yet not quite either he stood before her but he could not see her there was her beloved ordener her ordener whom she had believed dead whom she knew was lost to her her friend who had deceived her and whom she adored with renewed adoration he was there yes he was there she was not the victim of a vain dream oh it was really he that ordener alas whom she had seen in dreams more often than in reality. But did he appear within these gloomy precincts as an angel of deliverance or a spirit of evil? Was she to hope in him or to tremble for him? A thousand conjectures crowded upon her at once and oppressed her mind like a flame choked by too much fuel. All the ideas and sensations which we have suggested flashed through her brain as the son of the Norwegian viceroy pronounced his name. She was the first to recognize him, and before anyone else had recognized him, she had fainted. She soon recovered her senses for the second time, thanks to the attentions of her mysterious neighbor. With pale cheeks she again opened her eyes, in which the tears had been suddenly dried. She cast an eager glance at the young man still standing unmoved amid the general confusion, 
and after all agitation had ceased in the court and among the people, Ordener Guldenlev's name still rang in her ears. With painful alarm she observed that he wore his arm in a sling, and that his wrists were chained. She noticed that his mantle was torn in several places, and that his faithful sword no longer hung at his side. Nothing escaped her solicitude, for the eye of a lover is like that of a mother. Her whole soul flew to the rescue of him whom she could not shield with her body, and, be it said to the glory and the shame of love, in that room which contained her father and her father's persecutors, Ethel saw but one man. Silence was gradually restored. The president resumed his examination of the viceroy's son. "'My lord baron,' said he in a tremulous voice. "'I am not my lord baron here,' firmly answered Ordner. "'I am Ordner Guldenlef, just as he who was once Count Griffenfeld is John Schumacher here.' The president hesitated for a moment, then went on. "'Well, Ordner Guldenlef, it is doubtless by some unlucky accident that you are brought before us.' The rebels must have captured you while you were travelling, and forced you to join them, and it is probably in this way that you were found in their ranks. The secretary rose. Noble judges, the mere name of the viceroy's son is a sufficient plea for him. Baron Ordener Guldenlev cannot by any possibility be a rebel. Our illustrious president has given a clear explanation of his unfortunate arrest among the rebels. The noble prisoner's only error is in not sooner revealing his name. We request that he may be set free at once, abandoning all charges against him, and only regretting that he should have been seated upon a bench degraded by the criminal Schumacher and his accomplices. What would you do? cried Ordner. The private secretary, said the president, withdraws the charges against you. He is wrong, replied Ordner in a loud, clear voice. I alone, of all here, should be accused, judged, and condemned. He paused for a moment and added in a less resolute tone, For I alone am guilty. You alone guilty, exclaimed the president. You alone guilty, repeated the secretary. A fresh burst of astonishment was heard in the audience. The wretched Ethel shuddered. She did not reflect that this declaration from her lover would save her father, she thought only of her ordner's death. "'Silence in the court,' said the president, possibly taking advantage of this brief tumult to collect his thoughts and recover his self-possession. "'Ordener Guldenlev,' he resumed, "'explain yourself.' The young man mused an instant, then sighed heavily, and uttered these words in a tone of calm submission. "'Yes, I know that an infamous death awaits me.' I know that my life might have been bright and fair. But God reads my heart, God alone. I am about to accomplish the most urgent duty of my life. I am about to sacrifice to it my blood, perhaps my honour. But I feel that I shall die without regret or remorse. Do not be surprised at my words, judges. There are mysteries in the soul and in the destiny of man which man cannot penetrate, and which are judged in heaven alone." Hear me, therefore, and act toward me as your conscience may dictate, when you have pardoned these unfortunate men, and more especially the much-injured Schumacher, who has already, in his long captivity, expiated many more crimes than any one man could ever commit. Yes, I am guilty, noble judges, and I alone. Schumacher is innocent. These other unhappy men were merely led astray. I am the author of the insurrection among the miners. You! you.
exclaimed the president and his private secretary with a singular look upon their faces ay and do not interrupt me again gentlemen i am in haste to finish for by accusing myself i exonerate these poor prisoners i excited the miners in schumacher's name i distributed those banners to the rebels i sent them money and arms in the name of the prisoner of munkholm hackett was my agent at the name of hackett the private secretary made a gesture of stupefied amazement ordner continued i will not trespass on your time gentlemen i was captured among the miners whom i persuaded to revolt i alone did everything now judge me if i have proved my guilt i have also proved the innocence of schumacker and the poor wretches whom you deem his accomplices the young man spoke these words his eyes raised to heaven ethel almost lifeless scarcely breathed but it seemed to her that ordener although he exculpated her father pronounced his name most bitterly the young man's language terrified and amazed her although she could not comprehend it of all she heard she grasped nothing but misery a sentiment of similar nature seemed to engross the president he was scarcely able to believe his ears nevertheless he asked the viceroy's son if you are indeed the sole author of this revolt what was your object in instigating it i cannot tell you ethel shivered when she heard the president reply in a somewhat angry tone had you not an intrigue with schumacker's daughter but ordner though in chains advanced toward the bench and exclaimed in accents of indignation chancellor d'alefeld content yourself with my life which i place in your hands respect the noble and innocent girl do not a second time attempt to dishonor her ethel who felt the blood rise to her face did not comprehend the meaning of the words a second time upon which her defender laid such emphasis but by the rage expressed in the president's features it seemed that he understood them ordener guldenlev do not forget the respect due to the king's justice and the officers of the law i reprimand you in the name of the court i now summon you anew to declare your purpose in committing the crime of which you accuse yourself i repeat that i cannot tell you was it not to deliver schumacher inquired the secretary ordener was silent do not persist in silence prisoner said the president it is proof that you have been in communication with schumacher and your confession of guilt rather implicates than exonerates the prisoner of munkholm you have paid frequent visits to munkholm and your motive was surely more than mere curiosity let this diamond buckle bear witness the president took from the table a diamond buckle do you recognize it as your property yes by what chance well one of the rebels gave it before he died to our private secretary averring that he received it from you in payment for rowing you across from trondheim to munkholm fortress now i ask you judges if such a price paid to a common sailor does not prove the importance laid by the prisoner ordner guldenlev upon his reaching that prison which is the one where schumacher was confined ah exclaimed the prisoner cannibal what your grace says is true i recognize the buckle it is the same story which our poor brother gulden stiper told me silence said the president let ordner guldenlev answer i will not deny replied ordner that i desire to see schumacker but this buckle has no significance 
It is forbidden to enter the fort wearing diamonds. The sailor who rowed me across complained of his poverty during our passage. I flung him this buckle, which I was not allowed to wear. Pardon me, your grace, interrupted the private secretary. The rule does not include the viceroy's son. You could therefore... I did not wish to give my name. Why not? asked the president. I cannot tell you. Your relations with Schumacher and his daughter prove that the object of your conspiracy was to set them free. Schumacher, who had hitherto shown no sign of attention save an occasional scornful shrug of the shoulders, rose. <laughs> to set me free. The object of this infernal plot was to compromise and ruin me, as it still is. Do you think that Ordner Guldenlev would confess his share in this crime unless he had been captured among the rebels? Oh, I see that he inherits his father's hatred of me. And as for the relations which you suppose exist between him and myself and my daughter, let him know that accursed Guldenlev that my daughter also inherits my loathing for him, for the whole race of Guldenlefs and Dalefels. Ordner sighed deeply, while Ethel in her heart disclaimed her father's assertion, and he fell back upon his bench, quivering with wrath. The court will decide for itself, said the president. Ordner, who at Schumacher's words had silently cast down his eyes, seemed to awake. Oh, hear me, noble judges! You are about to examine your consciences. Do not forget that Ordner Guldenlev is alone guilty. Schumacher is innocent. These other unfortunate men were deceived by my agent, Hackett. I did everything else. Cannibal interrupted him. His worship says truly, judges, for it was he who undertook to bring Hans of Iceland to us. I only hope that name may not bring me ill luck. I know that it was this young man who ventured to seek him out in Walderhock Cave, to persuade him to be our leader. He confided the secret of his undertaking to me in Serb village, at the house of my brother Baal. And for the rest, too, the young gentleman says truly, we were deceived by that confounded Hackett, whence it follows that we do not deserve death. Mr. Secretary, said the President, the hearing is ended. What are your conclusions? The Secretary rose, bowed several times to the court, passed his finger under the folds of his lace-band without taking his eyes from the president's face. At last he pronounced the following words in a dull, measured voice. Mr. President, most worthy judges, it is a true bill. Ordner Guldenlev, who has forever tarnished the glory of an illustrious name, has only succeeded in establishing his own guilt, without proving the innocence of ex-Chancellor Schumacher and his accomplices, Hans of Iceland, Wilfred Cannibal, Jonas and Norbith. I require the court to declare the six prisoners guilty of the crime of high treason in the first degree. A vague murmur rose from the crowd. The president was about to dismiss the court when the bishop asked for a brief hearing. Learned judges, it is proper that the prisoner's defense should be heard last. I could wish that they had a better advocate, for I am old and feeble and have no other strength than that which proceeds from God. I am confounded at the secretary's severe sentence. There is no proof of my client Schumacher's crime. There is no evidence that he has had any direct share in the insurrection. And since my other client, Ordner Guldenlev, confesses that he made unlawful use of Schumacher's name, and moreover that he is the sole author of this damnable sedition, all evidence against Schumacher disappears. You should therefore acquit him. 
I recommend to your Christian indulgence the other prisoners, who were only led astray like the good shepherd's sheep. And even young Ordener Guldenlev, who has at least the merit, very great in the sight of God, of confessing his crime. Reflect, judges, that he is still at the age when a man may err and even fall. But God does not refuse to support or to raise him up. Ordener Guldenlev bears scarce a fourth the burden of years which weigh down my head. Place in the balance of your judgment his youth and inexperience, and do not so soon deprive him of the life which the Lord has but lately given him. The old man ceased and took his place beside Ordener, who smiled. While at the invitation of the president, the judges rose from the bench and silently crossed the threshold of the dread scene of their deliberations. While a handful of men were deciding the fate of six fellow beings within that terrible sanctuary, the prisoners remained motionless upon their seat between two files of halberdiers. Schumacher, his head on his breast, seemed absorbed in meditation. The giants stared to the right and left with stupid assurance. Jonas and Cannibal, with clasped hands, prayed in low tones, while their comrade, Norbith, stamped his foot or shook his chains with a convulsive start. Between him and the venerable bishop, who was reading the penitential psalms, sat Ordener, with folded arms and eyes lifted to heaven. Behind them was the noise of the crowd, which swelled high when the judges left the room. The famous prisoner of Munkholm, the much-dreaded demon of Iceland, and above all the viceroy's son, were the objects of every thought, every speech, and every glance. The uproar, mingled with groans, laughter, and confused cries, rose and fell like a flame flickering in the wind. Thus passed several hours of anxious expectation, so long that every one was astonished that they could be contained in a single night. From time to time a glance was cast toward the door of the anteroom, but there was nothing to be seen save the two soldiers pacing to and fro with their glittering partisans before the fatal entrance, like two silent ghosts. At last the lamps and torches began to burn dim, and the first pale rays of dawn were piercing the narrow windows of the room when the awful door opened. Profound silence instantly, and as if by magic, took the place of all the confusion, and the only sounds heard were the hurried breathing and the vague slight stir of the multitude in suspense. The judges, proceeding slowly from the anteroom, resumed their places on the bench, the president at the head. The private secretary, who had seemed absorbed in thought during their absence, bowed and said, Mr. President, what sentence does the court, from whose decision there is no appeal, pronounce in the king's name? We are ready to hear it with religious respect. The judge, seated at the president's right hand, rose, holding a roll of parchment. His Grace, our illustrious president, exhausted by the length of this session, has deigned to commission me, Lord Mayor of the province of Trondheim, and the natural president of this worshipful court, to read in his stead the sentence pronounced in the name of the king. I am about to fulfill this honourable but painful duty, requesting the audience to hear the king's impeccable justice in silence. The Lord Mayor's voice then assumed a grave and solemn intonation, and every heart beat faster. In the name of our revered master and lawful sovereign, King Christian, we, the judges of the Supreme Court of the province of Trondheim, summoned to decide in the cases of John Schumacher, prisoner of the state, Wilfried Cannibal, native of the Kjölen Mountains, Jonas, royal miner, Norbith, royal miner, Hans of Klipstadur in Iceland, 
and Ordner Guldenlev, Baron Thorwick, Knight of the Dannebrog, all accused of high treason and Lee's Majesty in the first degree. Hans of Iceland being, moreover, charged with the crimes of murder, arson, and robbery. Do find 1. That John Schumacher is not guilty. 2. That Wilfried Cannibal, Jonas, and Norbith are guilty, but are recommended to mercy because they were led astray. 3. That Hans of Iceland is guilty of all the crimes laid to his charge. 4. That Ordner Guldenlev is guilty of high treason and Lee's majesty in the first degree. The judge paused an instant as if to take breath. Ordner fixed upon him a look of celestial joy. John Schumacher, resumed the judge, the court acquits you and remands you to prison. Cannibal, Jonas and Norbith, the court commutes the penalty which you have incurred to imprisonment for life and a fine of one thousand crowns each. Hands of Clipsadur, murderer and incendiary, you will be taken this night to Moncom Parade Ground and hanged by the neck until you are dead, dead, dead. Ordner Guldenlev, traitor, after having been stripped of your titles in presence of this court, you will be conducted this very night to the same place with a lighted torch in your hand, and there your head shall be hewn off, your body burned, your ashes strewn to the winds, and your head exposed upon a stake. Let all withdraw. Such is the sentence rendered by the king's justice. The Lord Mayor had scarcely ended these fatal words when a shriek rang through the room. <gasps> this shriek horrified the spectators even more than did the fearful terms of the death sentence. This shriek, for a brief moment, turned the calm and radiant face of the condemned Ordner pale. End of chapter 43